0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I believe the theme of this passage is uh, very uh, appropriate to where we are as a country and what's happened in the last... Uh, week or at least what 's been revealed about our our country in the last week, and uh, so I want to uh, address that we 're studying a book on providence, and so providentially I believe we 're landing on a chapter that really addresses uh, some, some some things uh, for us all to apply in our lives. I'm going to be very brief on the background. If you haven't been here the past two weeks, I'm going to give you enough that you'll be able to track with this chapter. But I'm not going to review in any kind of detail. Chapter one, we meet a guy named a king, Ahasuerus. He's in the 480s BC, and he's the king of the Persian Empire, which is the largest empire in the world. So he's the most powerful guy on the on the earth, I suppose. And uh, he has a conflict with his wife, he banishes her, so he needs to find a new queen. Chapter 2, we meet uh, these two Jewish people who live in the Persian Empire in the exile. Their names are Mordecai and then uh, his cousin, her name is Esther, who the book's named for obviously, and uh, they're Jewish and they have not really made their faith known from what we can read. So what King Ahasuerus does to find a new queen is he gets all the beautiful virgins, Uh, in the entire huge empire, brings them to a harem, uh, gives them a year of beauty treatments, and then one by one has them spend the night with him and sleeps with them, and then at the end of that process, he selects, or in that process, he selects uh, who he prefers to be queen, and uh, of of surprise is surprise, he picks... Esther. She was beautiful, and she was brought into the harem, and Mordecai told her twice, we read it twice in the chapter, not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. So uh, under his direction, uh, she is kept her faith uh, secret, but she is now the queen, and she's a Jew in the Persian Empire, and the the king doesn't even know this. And that's what happens when we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews." the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, uh, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, "'There is a certain people scattered abroad "'and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom.'" "...their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to Haman, commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials, all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces an instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was, pat- was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, we pray that you would reveal to us the intent of this passage. We pray that you would help us understand the context in which it was written and the original uh, circumstances. We pray that you would help us understand the themes of this passage, and we pray that you would help us understand how these themes of what you reveal about yourself could help us today honor you, glorify you, and love others, and particularly at a a difficult time uh, here where we live, we pray for uh, wisdom and direction and guidance and, and the molding of our hearts by the gospel, that the gospel might be real to us and that we might see, in fact, what you say and how we can respond in this passage. Open our ears, open our hearts, speak to us, and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Uh, To understand this chapter, we have to understand what these things were. The after these things are the verses at the end of chapter 2. And what happens at the end of chapter 2, I'll let you read it. It's very simple. What happens is Mordecai is at the king's gate. So remember, he's the, the Jewish gentleman whose cousin that he's in charge of. Um, because she has no parents. Uh, She is now the queen, and he is at the king's gate. He works there. The king's gate is not literally a gate. It's not like he's sitting there loitering. It it is the area in front of the palace where legal matters and business matters occurred. So it's it's more like an office kind of thing, Uh, the the area, the building at the king's gate. And while he's working there, it's made known to him that two of the king's eunuchs who are, uh, well, their names aren't that important, but anyway, two of the king's eunuchs are going to kill the king. And so, what Mordecai does is he takes that intel, he goes to his cousin Esther, and says, Esther, the king is going to be killed by these two guys. The king investigates it and finds out that it's true, and so he has these two. Uh, Conspirators, he has them hanged. And then the last verse of the chapter, uh, chapter two, says, And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Here's what's so important. It was recorded what Mordecai did. Mordecai saved the king's life, and it's written down before the king. Now, what always happened from what I've read in Persian custom is that if you did a good deed, a heroic deed like this to save the king's life, you would receive tremendous gift, promotion, honor, or something like that. So here's what happens. Mordecai saves the king's life. It's recorded, and here's the next verse. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, who is an anti-Semite, a man who is an enemy of the Jews. So this Jewish, though it's not known that he's Jewish, this Jewish man saves the king's life and another guy, by coincidence, by accident, gets, so to speak, uh, gets promoted ahead of him. And this guy is now the second in command. And so the king has said, when Haman, who is second in command, the Agagite, when he walks by, everybody's got to bow down to him. Verse 2, but Mordecai did not bow down to him. So all of the servants are going, hey, why aren't you bowing down? They notice it, and it says that they ask him day after day. And he obviously doesn't give them much of an answer of why he's doing it other than to tell them he was a Jew, which has been kept secret previously. But now he's decided to disclose that. So the other servants go and they tell Haman, uh, hey, Mordecai does not bow down and pay homage to you. Haman is then filled with fury. So evidently, Haman's not noticed this, but now he's looking and he comes through the next day and there's Mordecai not bowing down and he is filled with fury. And because of the act, the defiance of one man, here's Haman's attitude. He's gonna blame a whole people He's going to judge an entire people and he's going to execute an entire people because of this man and his hatred for this man. So it says, Haman sought to, verse uh, 6, sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole world. There's an indescribable level of hatred here. That this guy's not bowing down to me, filled with fury, I'm going to kill every one of his people. Indescribable hatred? indescribable judgment, indescribable devaluing of life. I mean, think about this. People in 127 provinces will all be executed because of this man's judgment of these people. Now, why does Mordecai refuse to bow? Well, the text doesn't tell us, that's the short answer. It doesn't tell us, it only tells us that he is a Jew. Which really doesn't answer it because this is likely not really an act of worship. For instance, he would have presumably felt comfortable bowing before the king uh, just as someone today would bow before the queen of England or a lady would curtsy before the queen of England. It's a show of respect and it would have been required of a Ahasuerus for sure. And he would have encountered Ahasuerus, and so evidently he would have bowed before him. In chapter 8, Esther is going to throw herself at the feet of the king, much more than a courteous bow. So that's probably not it. The scripture didn't forbid bowing in reverence uh, and honor to uh, a ruler. Scripture doesn't forbid that. So why does he do it? Well, it's probably... And I say probably because it doesn't say directly. It probably has to do with the rivalry between the Jews and between Haman. Because here's what we learn about Haman. The first thing we learn about him, verse 1, is he's an Agagite. That means he's of the people of Amalek. Agag was a previous king of Amalek. What do we learn in chapter 2, verse 5? The first thing we learn about Mordecai is that he's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So the Amalekites, which is Haman, he's from that, that tribe, they are a chief enemy of Israel. As a matter of fact, when Israel came out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 17, the first group of people to attack them, the first group of people to oppose Israel was the Amalekites. And, and God said, I'm going to blot them from the face of the earth because they have opposed my people and thus have opposed me violently. So that was his promise. Well, what happens is a number, many, 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 many years later, the first Israelite king is Saul of Benjamin. So uh, Mordecai is related to Saul, the king of Israel. Uh, He goes and he uh, attacks the nation, the Amalekites, but he doesn't destroy them all. He lets King Agag live. And so there is this rivalry, ultimately, someone else kills Agag, uh, Samuel. But there is this rivalry between the Amalekites, who God said he's going to blot off the face of the earth, and the Jews. They are a people that hate each other. So potentially what's going on here, for sure from Haman's point of view, is he despises the Jews because of history. There is a historic hatred that it doesn't matter what you're like today. What matters is what happened then. And so there is this historic hatred between, for sure, the Amalekites and, for sure, in this passage, Haman. It could be that Mordecai says, I'll bow to the king, but I'm not going to bow to the direct enemy of God's people. Uh, and there could be just a resistance to that. We don't know, but we do know who they're, where they're from, what people groups they're from, from, and how these people groups oppose each other. Are you seeing some of the reasons that this is a relevant text? Uh, for us in our world today. So what happens? Well, he has to do two things before he can destroy Israel. He has to find out, first of all, when's the best time, and that's why in verse 7 he casts lots. Lots are like dice, and so this isn't gaming or gambling. What he's doing is he's casting these lots, whatever that looks like. I just did it like I know what it's like to cast a lot. No one's seen a lot. I don't know what a lot is, but it's like a dice. And so they cast lots, and what they're doing is they're divining from their gods what's the best time to kill the Jews. And so what they do is they cast lots. They pick day after day after day, and then ultimately this is an important event because this is going to come up at the end of the book again. They cast these lots, and they find out 12 months from now is the best day to kill the Jews. So there's going to be this 12 month, 11 month plus uh, lingering fear uh, over all the Jews. And so then the second thing he has to do is have to get the king to sign off on it. So he goes to the king and he says, Hey, look, there's this people group, there are these people that are throughout the land. True statement. Verse 2, their laws, I'm sorry, verse uh, 8, their laws are different from those of other people. True, but they're good citizens. They're not causing a problem, the Jews. Uh, And they do not keep the king's commands. Not true. Uh, Now, Ahasuerus, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Mordecai didn't obey this one law. But the king's people, the the Jews overall have obeyed the king's laws. The king is married to a Jew unbeknownst to him. So they, they are keeping the laws. Not true. So he says, if it please the king, they need to be destroyed. And unless the king doesn't think that's a threat, he says, I'm willing to pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's 300 tons. It's 600 tons of silver. I will give 600 tons of silver to kill them. And King Ahasuerus amazingly just think that's a good political idea, to kill them, even though he may not have a beef with them. So he gives him the ring for the money and says, go, this is the signet ring. You can kill these people. So he takes the signet ring, he brings the scribes in, verse 12. They write down this edict and they take it out throughout the land to everybody. And they say, here's what's going to happen. Uh, verse 13 letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction. Listen to these words. Two, verse 13 destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Can you hear the hatred from Haman towards these people? Only one of which has really offended him directly, from what we know. He doesn't just say, get rid of them. He says, they are to be killed, destroyed, killed, and annihilated And you are to plunder their goods. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying to everyone in the province on this day in the 12th month, you're to kill all your neighbors if they're Jewish. You're to kill their children. And you're to plunder all their goods. He doesn't say, I'm sending an army in. He says, this is what you are to do. And then we're left with this chilling response in verse 15. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. That's chilling, isn't it? We're going to kill everybody that's Jewish. Let's go have a drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They're thrown into confusion. What are the themes that arise in this chapter? Well, one prominent theme is injustice. I mean, if I were to pick a word to describe the theme of the chapter, it would be the word injustice. There's a micro-injustice, which the Lord is going to turn around. The micro-injustice is the way that that this is written. We get, uh, Mordecai saves the king's life. Mordecai, implication, should be honored and celebrated after these things, the enemy of Mordecai, the Jews, is raised to second in command over the, whole pro- over the whole empire, and everybody has to bow down to him. That is an injustice. It was unfair for Mordecai to be forgotten. Do you think he was tempted a little bit to say, look what I did, and nothing is coming of it? There's an injustice ultimately to Mordecai that the Lord will reverse. But there's a macro injustice that's much more grievous. And that is the injustice that all of the Jews are to be killed and their property to be plundered. They are innocent people who have done nothing wrong except for Mordecai, in Haman's eyes, has done something wrong. And they are putting this this slaughter at the response of their citizens. It's a mandated, legalized, required institutionalized, made official by edict, hatred of a people to be exterminated. It is a mandated uh, racial hate. It is a mandated racism because it is a judgment upon people just simply because of their religion or their ethnicity. I mean, Jewish people could be viewed as uh, both, both an ethnicity and a religion in this empire as they, they were a people group. That's how he describes them. There is this people uh, that are in the provinces of your kingdom. So there is this people group known as the Jews. They are a minority. And they are killed simply because he doesn't like something that one of them did, and probably because of a history behind them that fueled in to this hatred. There is also not only injustice and micro and macro, and not only racism, but there's also confusion. Can you relate to that at all? There is confusion in this chapter. How does it end? The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Confusion. Why are the Jews to be killed? I mean, surely some of the people in Susa, I mean, there were probably some prejudices against them as a minority religion, a strange religion, a religion with practices they didn't understand, a people who were a little bit different. So there may have been some mistreatment of them. They may have been prejudiced towards Jews in Persia, maybe, but killing them? I mean, I, I read from that when the city of was thrown into confusion. That likely some of the citizens, by God's common grace, the citizens of Persia, some of them, many of them, maybe most of them, if we're believing the best about this people, we don't know, but p- perhaps most of them w- would feel that's unjust. Well, what have they done? Go and kill their children, even the women? Take all their stuff? Why would this? We have to do this? that is confusion. Now certainly some voices were probably saying it's about time. There was probably some hateful people who didn't like them and wanted their stuff and said, okay, it's about time. I'm, I'm pro Ahasuerus. This is great. Uh, but, but, but probably many were not wanting to do something like this. They didn't want to see uh, a genocide of a people that they were to lead in. So there is confusion. And, and this is going to take place 11 months plus later. So there is this fear, this confusion among the people, among the Jews, among the culture. It's a chapter on injustice. Now let me let you know, in case you're not going to be back here, um, let let me let you know that ultimately what's going to happen is God providentially Spoiler alert, God providentially has raised raised Esther to be the queen, and she is going to risk her own life and very courageously go before her husband, the king, with a request uh, that the Jews basically uh, be able to defend themselves. And um, Once the edict's done in Persian law, it can't be undone, but there's another edict that kind of balances it out to save and preserve and protect the people of Israel. Israel. So she's going to be raised up and God's going to intervene providentially and God's going to reverse this injustice. But at this point, nobody knows that. And so everybody is feeling the unfair hatred, which some may endorse, others don't, certainly the Jews don't, this unfair hatred of a group of people uh, simply because they are Jews. Let me bring some application of this text to us today and say this first of all. God understands injustice. God understands injustice. The Bible is very real if you're new to the Bible. The Bible is a book about reality. The Bible records faithfully that we live in a fallen world and that individuals hate one another in this fallen world, and individuals hate groups in this fallen world. And individuals hate groups that they don't even know in this world. And groups hate groups. And people persecute. There's religious persecution. People unjustly persecute the people of God. People throughout the Old Testament seek to annihilate God's people, Israel, his covenant people under the Old Covenant, Israel. They, they're regularly trying to Uh, to annihilate them. And we see this is true in the New Testament as well. The book of Revelation is written to suffering Christians that are being martyred. They're being hated many times just because of their faith, not because of their actions, but because of their allegiance to Jesus. It's not as if they're insurrectionists. It's not as if they're trying to to cause trouble. They're just trying to live quiet lives and worship Jesus. And the empire opposes that because they don't worship Caesar. And so they are seeking to kill them. And the book of Revelation is written to give us a picture that says there is a king above the king. There is an emperor above the emperor. There is a Lord above Caesar. And though you are dying, the Lord is in control and will bring everything to a complete redemption one day. But that is written for our benefit as well. But it's written to suffering Christians. First Peter is written to suffering Christians. The book of Acts reveals suffering that, that Christians Endured. So the Bible understands injustice. The Bible records injustice. The Bible records uh, this kind of ethnic hatred. We see this on the pages of the Scripture. And the central, uh, the central example in all of the Bible of injustice is the injustice that God Himself endures. Jesus Christ. You want to talk about God understanding injustice? He doesn't just write about it in the Scripture he experiences it. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lives a perfect life. He never sins. He speaks the truth. He loves people. He cares for the oppressed. He loves the religious people who are the insiders as well and loves them by rebuking them prophetically so that they will come to God. He loves the marginalized who are on the outside, and that's why he's friends with tax collectors and uh, prostitutes and sinners. Jesus loves everyone when he comes to bring the gospel. He expresses his love, and yet he is falsely accused. He is run through an unjust trial. It's the most unjust trial. I guess that's the word unjust, not unjust, but the most unjust trial ever to be held, where God himself is convicted by sinful man. He experiences a trial that is a sham. He experiences punishment. And ultimately, he experiences death. He is nailed to a cross and dies as a criminal among criminals, though he is perfect, God himself. And he bears that injustice. Why? He bears that injustice to forgive unjust sinners. Unbelievable. He bears that injustice, and actually, while he is receiving injustice, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And he bears that injustice so that He bears the sins of our sins upon himself so that we could come to him, be forgiven of our sins, be given a new heart so that he could build a new people together, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, as the scripture says, building them as a people together to be a merciful and just society called the church, which would mirror the love of God, the mercy of God to the culture all around us so that we would mirror what it means to be one in Christ with people of a different gender of a different age of a different race of a different religious background before coming to Christ so that we can model love and justice alike that's why he dies he knows what it is like to be forsaken For he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to experience isolation, hatred, people spitting upon him, cursing him. God himself comes and endures injustice for the very purpose of redeeming people and building a just church to announce the good news to the world. And church, we have a long way to go. Now, he is faithful and he is good. That's the good news. But we have a long way to go. And it's weeks like this when that's really revealed, isn't it? There's a false sense of everything's okay until a week like this comes up. It starts with understanding injustice by realizing this, that in my own heart, there is a temptation and more than a temptation, a sin in my thoughts my attitudes and my words, at least, if not my actions, at least that, and maybe my actions as well, there, there is a problem in my own heart with being unjust. See, the problem is we can watch the events of the week on the TV and go, man, look at all the racism out there. Let's just be real clear. There's racism in here. Well, how do you know that? Because there's sinners in here. And there's sinners out there. And there's a sinner addressing you today. And, and it starts to, to, to be, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but to promote justice, it starts with just acknowledging that we are a people that are guilty at points, for sure, of unjust behavior ourselves, of unjust judgment ourselves, of marginalizing others ourselves and the gospel addresses injustice An entailment of the gospel uh, is to build towards racial reconciliation. It's an imperative of the gospel that as we took communion today, that that be a reality in the church, that people of different races really do experience unity in Christ and that we do take that attitude and that heart outside of these walls to a hurt and and a dying world that is experiencing tremendous confusion and hatred and separation. We want to be a people where the hope of the gospel is on display, but the hope of the gospel will not be on display until we quit judging all those bad people out there and start saying judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Lord, where could this be in my heart? That's where it starts. Well, God understands injustice. Number two, and I'm going to be very careful here because this is somewhat of a philosophical point that I'm not going to tease out. Um, So I'm going to be careful, but I'm going to be as clear as I can can, very briefly. God is mysteriously at work through injustice. God understands injustice. It's It's in the scripture. The gospel addresses it. Jesus endures it. But the God is also mysteriously at work through injustice. Now, this is where I want to be very clear. God never causes evil. God is never the author of evil. But God does use evil for his purposes. And therefore, we're not hopeless. If God didn't use evil to redeem for his purposes, we would be hopeless. But because he does, we can have much hope. This book is about the doctrine of God's providence. That's what Esther is. Providence is God's sustaining of all things he's created and his sustaining of his people, his working things out for our good and for his glory, his working, his redemptive plan out by his sovereign power for his people. And so God is a God who works by providence and providence, one of the, a word that describes providence and how God works is the word confluence. It's, this has been a very helpful word to me, confluence. Confluence means, con means together or with, fluence means to flow. It means to flow with. And so the way the universe works is that man does his evil, but God will flow with that and will bring good out of evil. The classic Old Testament verse and passage about this is Genesis 50. Joseph is uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. And what happens? Well, a lot of stuff happens, but ultimately they come to him needing food many years later and they are grieving. They are sorrow. They sorrowful. They sold their brother into slavery. They're scared to how he's in power and they could be doomed. And this is what Joseph says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says what you did meant to harm me, but God used that for good. That's what's happening in Esther. What Haman meant to do to harm the people of God, God is going to use, and he's already set it up with Esther in, in, the, you know, in the palace, he's already set it up to redeem it for good. The ultimate example of confluence, God working through the will, God's will and the will of man, ultimately working together, but God's will trumping man's will to have his way is the death of Jesus in, in uh, in, uh Uh, Acts 4 it says this Uh, Peter says Herod and Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus to whom you anointed let let me make that very simple Herod and Pilate uh, wanted to kill Jesus and are responsible for his death they did what your power had decided beforehand should happen did Herod Want Jesus killed? Yes. Was he evil? Yes. Did God want Jesus killed? Yes. And planned it. God's will and man's will work together, for, but God glorifies it. God raises Jesus from the dead and redeems. The book of Esther wants us to know that God providentially works through injustice. And this is why I'm needing to be careful because it doesn't mean that injustice is ever good. doesn't mean that injustice is ever acceptable. Was Herod off the hook for killing Jesus? Was, was Joseph's brothers off the hook for selling him into slavery? No, what they did was evil and they meant it for evil, but God used evil for good. So this is where there must be hope in injustice. If you watch secular commentators this week, they will say something like this. I, I just hope that the bad stuff that's happened, will, there'll be a good result out of this ultimately. Biblically, we would say God uses evil for his glory and for his church's good. So that's what he's going to do in the book of Esther. And even though we don't know how that works and we can't prescribe and we don't ever flippantly say, don't worry about injustice, God's sovereignty, he'll work it out. We don't ever say it flippantly or lacking care or compassion, but we must acknowledge that there is a God in heaven that rules over all and in him is our trust. And that is ultimately our hope, that some good, God brings good out of tragedy. So believing people who are burying their, their their dad, their brother, their son, whatever, who served on the Dallas police force that was killed this week, or somebody who was buried this week, who was killed by police. The believers who bury them can say, this is a grievous, grievous tragedy, but Lord, my hope is in you. I don't understand, but my hope is that you are God and you are good. If God cannot providentially work through tragedy, and if we are all just subject to the will of man and not ultimately to the will of God, we have no hope. And that's what this book wants to teach us, the book of Esther. It wants to teach us that even when the Jews had breathing down their neck, you will die and your children, and you can do nothing to escape that God ultimately would show his power And intervene in human wickedness and use human wickedness even for his glory and the good of his people. In a commentary on the book of Esther written by Karen Jobes, it's not one of the one that's out there, but this is what she wrote. Here's a quote for you. I felt like this is very helpful about the book of Esther and for us today. God is invisibly at work making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. We cannot see the end of things from the middle and must walk by faith and not by sight. The Lord will bring a greater good, his perfect plan out of all the frustration we feel and out of all the evil we experience. When all is said and done, God uses even injustice to fulfill his purposes As Joseph explained to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good. It does not excuse evil, but it does say that God is greater than evil. And God has all power to fulfill his purposes in his people. The book of Esther calls us to trust God when his ways are not discernible or traceable. To know that he rules and to know that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Revelation, at the end of Revelation we read that. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The last point. The first point is God understands injustice. Second point is God mysteriously works through injustice. And the last point is God's people are called to act justly. That's what Esther's going to do. She's going to be an instrument of justice to speak up at the risk of her own life and to protect her people, God's people. So God calls us to act justly and to pursue justice. Look at this quote from David Firth, who also wrote a commentary on Esther. And this is a great, great to be read along the point that I just made about God works and and one day will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is what he says. There is always the danger that Christians will point to our ultimate victory in Christ, but then ignore the suffering of God's people in many places, both individually and corporately. Esther will not permit this. He means the book of Esther. He doesn't mean Esther's authorities. The book of Esther will not permit this. The challenge is to keep both the hope of final victory and the reality of current pain in a proper tension. That is very good. The book of Esther doesn't just say everything will be sorted out in heaven. It doesn't just say God is providentially in control mysteriously behind the scenes. But it does say when you have an opportunity to act, you act for justice. And that's what Esther does. She speaks up. She acts. And that's what I love this quote by this commentator on Esther. He says, the book of Esther doesn't allow us to just say in the sweet by and by, everything will be okay. That's true. That's true. And that's comforting on a day like today. And that's comforting for those who are suffering. But we also must act to bring justice where we can. That's a big point of this book. Long for it in the age to come and act today. So how do we act none of us is like Esther. None of us can walk into the king and say, would you do this and change all the laws with one? None of us can do that. We don't live in a government where that can happen. Uh, So none of us can make that kind of change. And I don't know about you, but one of the most grievous things this week that I felt was just the frustration of not knowing what to do. And what do you do? When the, the events of this week, how do you respond? I feel like I want to make a change. I was, I've been very impacted by, by this week. I really have. I, every, every human has been impacted who saw the stories. But I've been impacted at a spiritual level that's, that's just been uh, deep for me this week. And I've asked, what can I do? And I'm just going to share three things. And they're very, they're baby steps. Oh, they're significant. They're very significant. But they may feel like baby steps. They're not the steps of how in three days institutional racism will be resolved in this country. (laughs) It's not that. That'll take an intervention of revival in the church from God. But here's three things. Number one, pray. Pray. It's not a small thing. It's not an insignificant thing. And I understand the frustration. I've read this I've read this for months at different times. Every time something bad happens, I've read this on social media. Yeah, well, prayer doesn't really work. You've got to go out and do something. I, I disagree. Anytime anybody is minimizing prayer and the value of prayer and critiquing prayer, uh, b- be discerning and don't pay attention to that. Prayer is significant. They're going to fast. We're going to find out. They're going to fast. I'm not sure it says pray, but that's implied, I assume. They're going to fast for God to ultimately act in, in the book of Esther. So they prayed. Pray some very specific ways. Pray, and right now in these days, I would pray two, uh, several prayers, and we prayed them here on Friday. One would be, obviously, we're in Dallas and very aware. One would be to pray for the protection of our police, we're called to pray for our authorities, First Timothy. That's one way we could pray. But we also need to pray that they would not abuse their authority. We pray for both. We pray for those in authority, and we pray that those in authority would act righteously. We pray for the justifiable fear uh, that police would have in these days, that as they serve, they wouldn't be fearful, but they would be uh, they would fulfill their responsibilities. And we pray for the justifiable fear that many African Americans in our community feel toward the police. We pray for both. We pray for rec- racial reconciliation in the church. And as I said earlier, that is an imperative of the gospel that the church be the place where we see the unity that we read this morning from John 17 in in, in communion, that the church be the place where there is a unity of God's people and there is a love and a service, and it's countercultural. This is a time for the church to shine because the culture is looking for something countercultural. They're looking for answers. What do we do? And the answer is in Jesus Christ. It's the only, he's the only answer. So, one, we pray. Number two, we grieve. I, I think this is a time to be aware of what's going on and to lament and to grieve. A few weeks ago, I stood in this pulpit and I said, if you were fearful because of what's going to happen in our church, in our church, in our nation in the upcoming elections, then you need to stop watching so much political commentary and you need to read the Bible about the sovereignty of God and providence of God. I said, turn it off until you've heard from God. Well, today I'm going to tell you to turn it on. I I think it's important to be aware of what's happening. If you're unaware of what's going on, then you won't grieve. But I think to see, that's been one of the things that affected me the most. I don't care what your color is. I don't care what your position is. To see people on TV weeping over death should get us in the gut. Romans tells us to weep with those who weep. Being a Christian is feeling the hurt and the burdens of others and grieving. And so we weep with those who weep. That's an appropriate Christian response. And we weep with those and their families and their friends that are weeping today. And I've prayed by name for people this week. I think that's important. Names and faces. We can't pray for every injustice, but we can pray for people that are grieving today. We can grieve with the families and the friends in Louisiana the friends of Alton Sterling this week. We can grieve and pray for the friends and the family of Philando Castile in Minnesota. We can weep and we can pray and we can grieve for the families of the five officers in Dallas, some of which you may have connections to that have died. Brent Thompson and his family, Patrick Zamaripa and his family, Michael Kroll and his family. It helps to hear the names, doesn't it? Michael Smith, who I read in the paper, is an active member of Watermark Church. Can you imagine what it's like in that church today? Uh, A known man of God in that church. And Lorne Ahrens. All of these individuals that I just named have a string of family of friends, and in their cities in particular, we're we're in one of those cities, uh, have people grieving. So it is appropriate to grieve and to lament and to weep. Number three, and finally, it is appropriate to listen. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a radical action, but I think it's a very radical action. Esther could make a big change by going to the king. You and I don't have that power, as I said, but I believe we can take an important action, and that is in the midst of severe racial divide. Listen to one another especially in the church, especially in the church. If there's going to be any change, if there's going to be any unity in the body of Christ, it will not happen without understanding. It will not happen without listening. It will not happen with me running my mouth as opposed to being quick to hear and slow to speak. James 1. I've never addressed a race from the pulpit, but I am going to address the white people in our church as a white man at this point. I don't know that I will do racial applications again. I hope what I say is relevant to everyone. But on this point of listening, I want to address those who, like myself, are in the majority culture in this country and in this church. I mean, we're a diverse church. We're a diverse church and we want to be more diverse, but I want to address the white listening audience in our congregation today on this point about listening. If the church is going to honor Jesus, if the church is going to apply the gospel for reconciliation, those in leadership like me and those in the majority culture who experience a privilege that we don't even understand we're going to have to listen and we're going to have to get it and I'm speaking to you as a guy I don't think you should probably profile in a section on racism but if we were to profile me I would not be very likely to get it I'm white for those of you listening to the podcast it's evident to the audience I'm white I'm male I'm old. I'm suburban. I grew up in Texas. Went to California for two decades, which was very helpful on the topic I'm speaking on, and came back to live, and I hope die, in Texas. Old, white, suburban, male in Texas. You could vote me least likely to get the African-American experience in the U.S. But I want to get it. I've got to get it. If you're a Christian and you're white like me, we've got to get it. And the only way we're going to get it is by the grace of God and by listening. I've been listening for a while, not long enough. I wish I could tell you I've been listening for 10, 20, 30 years. I've been listening for months few years i've been reading i've been asking questions of african american friends and here's one of the things i'm learning and i hope this will be helpful to everybody it is very different to understand the experience of someone that is foreign to yours And the challenge is to presume. And it is sinful to presume that I know your experience and that I can tell you how to act in your experience and that I am empathetic to what you've been through. Think about this for a minute. Um, I can't presume what it's like to be a single mother. Why? I'm male. I'm married. That'd be the starting place. So who in the world would I be to just, without listening, just dictate what the issues are for a single mother. I don't understand her frustrations. I don't understand her temptations. I don't understand what day in, day out feels like her. I don't understand what the world looks like to her. I don't understand her burdens compared to mine if I don't ask questions. I can't presume to know what it would be like to be an elderly shut-in. I'm just picking different kind people that are different than me. I don't care what their color. I'm just picking people different than me. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it feels like to feel lonely in that way, isolated, forgotten. I can't presume to just dictate. Well, you shouldn't feel forgotten. God loves you. I don't know that elderly shut-ins' circumstances. It would be the height of arrogance for me to go to an elderly shut-in with frustration and a lack of empathy, and, and, and seeking to speak and tell rather than seeking to listen with compassion. Why? Because my experience is very different. And my experience is very different from some, but not all, but some, many, most, nearly all. I don't know the category, but my experience is different than most African Americans. I don't share the same history in this country, I don't share the same current experience either. It's different. And I must listen. And let me give you a clue. Could I be very real? I don't know if this is real, but I'm about to get very real, if that's okay. Let me give you a clue as a white person listening to African Americans. When you start to feel that, yeah, but, rising up, That's when you need to shut your mouth, and I need to shut my mouth and listen. That's when when we most need to remember what our mom has told us. You've got two ears and one mouth. You should do twice as much listening as you do speaking. It's that moment. Yeah, but that's when I need to listen to understand. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, but listen. Listen. Why Why do you say that? Why do you feel that? What's behind that? Help me to understand why that hashtag means something to you. Yeah, but I don't hate black people. I've got a black friend. Wonderful. Amazing. (laughs) You're a regular Dr. Martin Luther King. Incredible. Incredible. I don't judge black people. Why do you feel judged? Listen. Listen, yeah, but, some of you thought it when I said it a few minutes ago, slavery and Jim Crow, that is a long time ago. We live in an equal opportunity society today. Listen, listen, when the yeah, but comes up. Yeah, but, the police protect us. I've never felt threatened by a police officer. I've never felt threatened. Why do you say that? Listen, listen. I'm colorblind. I'm colorblind. Why is it that everything is race to you? Every all of life is about race. Not me. I'm colorblind. First of all, it's not true. But secondly, listen. Thirdly, realize the Bible's not colorblind. In the book of Revelation, the Bible doesn't say there's a generic mass of generic non-gendered humanity before the throne. No, there are men and women of every tribe, nation, and race worshiping Jesus. It's not a colorblind picture. It's a multiplicity of people united in Jesus for worship. That's the goal. Listen. And I don't know, Craig, that sounds to me like some false white guilt. It sounds to me like biblical Christianity. Philippians 2, Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. And when I am like this, rather than like this... I am not looking to the interests of others. I'm seeking to justify myself. I'm seeking to prove my point. 1 Corinthians 13, listen to this. This doesn't sound, this sounds to me like love. Love is patient. Patient is listening. Love is kind. Kindness means I want to understand your experience, not argue and debate it. That doesn't mean that every one of us read our experiences perfectly, accurately, and the Bible doesn't want to adjust it. I'm not saying that we all, our experience is all perfect. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying kindness is listening. Love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant it is the height of arrogance for me to dictate to someone else without understanding and proclaiming that i do impatiently thinking why doesn't this person just move on just just get with it whatever the phrase is it does not insist on its own way love does not <laughs> insist on its own way it doesn't insist on being heard it insists on hearing it is not irritable It is not resentful. Some of us have been tempted with resent this week in the room, all of us. Love's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Listening. Listen to me. Sometimes voices shout because they don't feel heard. Sometimes people protest because the feeling in their soul is nobody gets this. I'm not saying that all we do is pray. I'm not saying all we do is grieve. I'm not saying all we do is listen. But I'm saying that is a massive step in the right direction. It is a massive step in the right direction. And because when we begin to see how others perhaps, are experiencing injustice, then we can begin to look at our own hearts and our own attitudes and our own blind spots. Man, it's parts. I don't care your color or anything. Now I'm speaking to everybody. We all need to say, I got blind spots and I need the Lord to help me see those. Every one of us needs that. Sometimes it takes a while to see the log in our own eye before we can remove it to see the speck in someone else's. And on this issue, the way we see the log, because so many of our attitudes are so deeply entrenched, is that we listen. We listen. We listen. I'm not saying that the scripture and this topic doesn't have something to say to African-Americans. I'm not an African-American pastor in an African-American, predominantly African-American church, African-Americans in our church, but it's not a historic black church, obviously, and I'm not black. And if I was in that church, then maybe I'd be saying a few different things today. I don't know. I think I would from the scripture, but I'm trying to pastor the majority in our church God understands injustice. Jesus knows what it's like to be forgotten, rejected, and mistreated and hated. And he gave his life to redeem our hate and prejudice. Hatred towards a race. Hatred towards police and authority hatred towards men or women, hatred towards anyone. He died to redeem hatred. And that our hope is that he will intervene in a dramatic way. And in these days, bring revival to the church and bring revival to our land. But if he chooses not to act in that way, then we must still trust him. We must still pray, grieve and act. And there are actions that each of us can do that are greater. But we start with listening. If you're like me, now I'm back to speaking to white people, then we're done. If you're like me. Find an African-American that you can trust and ask them some questions. Their experience may be very similar to yours, but it may be radically different. And and listen to some people who are commenting on their hurt and grief in the African-American community. I'd I'd listen and read, sometimes selectively, especially it's very helpful from Christians, to hear from Christians, I think, because I don't just listen to everybody who has any opinion about any topic, but on this one, someone's experience is valid. So I would listen. And even when you're watching TV and a commentator and the yeah, buts start coming up, pause and listen and say, Lord, would you address my heart? If that guy on the TV has got problems, the Lord will sort him out. Let's assume I've got some problems and let's sort me out. But if you can sit down, if you don't have a black friend, well, that's the first prayer. Lord, would you bring me a friend of a different race who has experiences different than mine so I can learn? That's the first prayer. And if you do have one, ask questions. This passage on Esther about God intervening in injustice and about God's love for his people, I read a quote, I think appropriately, I just came across this last night, appropriately um, to conclude from Martin Luther King. This is something he wrote eloquently about I think really addresses where we are right now. He wrote this, at times, think about the book of Esther and what we're studying. At times, we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice. When slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the green herb. When our most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of man. But there are also times when we need to know that God possesses love and mercy when we are staggered by the chilly winds of adversity and battered by the raging storms of disappointment, and when through our folly and sin we stray into some destructive far country and are frustrated because of a strange feeling of homesickness, we need to know that there is someone who loves us, cares for us, understands us and will give us another chance when days grow dark and nights grow dreary we can be thankful that our, com- our God combines in his nature a creative synthesis of love and justice which will lead us through life's dark valleys and into sunlit pathways of hope and fulfillment That's beautiful poetically to me. That there are times when God intervenes to the slumbering injustice. And there are the times when he doesn't. And when he doesn't, we as Christians need to know our God loves us in Jesus Christ. And we need to find hope in him. I have gone way over. And I haven't gone this far over in a sermon since preaching on sex last summer. So... (laughs) Be warned, if we're going to have a sex or a racism speech, it's going to go long, I guess. That's, that's, that's the tenor. So I don't really even apologize. Uh, but I'm sorry if you're late for something or your kids are freaking out. I apologize to the children's ministry workers. Thanks for your patience. I just felt like in reading this passage and seeing the injustice and the despair of the confusion of the city of Susa, I just felt like it mapped on to our experience. And I just wanted to speak about we're not Esther speaking to the king, but we're speaking to the king of kings and we're grieving and we can take steps towards people who have a different experience than us by listening, by starting there, by listening and learning. And all of us asking, God, speak to me in my blind spots that I might be a reconciler and an instrument of peace. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at dot org.